important question. How many of you have green on? All right. I was thinking during when we greet one another, we could pinch one another. But I didn't know how that would go over newcomers coming and getting pinched. I got my green shirt on. So happy St. Patrick's Day. My name is Brock. I'm one of the pastors here on the leadership team. And I'm excited about where we are as a church. We are going to be talking more about this, but we are a community of worship and formation on mission with Jesus. We're going to be talking more about that in the month of April. We're going to have a series where we look at those different aspects, worship, formation in Jesus, and being on mission with him. But we're starting to talk about that and focus on that. That is our mission as a church, and it's rooted in the vision of God that's given in Scripture. We're in week 11 of our series on developing a biblical vision of the kingdom of God. And I want to throw up a sign here so we can, a slide here so you can see where we've, where we've gone. Each Sunday we gather together and we worship and we worship as we open the Scriptures together and we worship in the Lord's Supper, and then we worship as we minister to one another. So really everything we do here is about worship. What we've been doing worshipfully over the last 11 weeks is looking at the kingdom of God in Scripture. Some of you, if you're like me, you probably can't read that. That's okay. I want you to see where we've gone over the last 11 weeks. On the left here is a nice path that leads up to the top of a a mountain here with a vantage. And so over the last 11 weeks, we have made our way up this circuitous path as we look at the kingdom of God beginning in the book of Genesis. We saw in Genesis 1 that kingdom was in God's heart from the beginning. And then we made our way through different places in the Old Testament where we caught glimpses of the kingdom of God through the first five books of Moses all the way into Psalms. We saw in Daniel and Isaiah, that they were prophesying further about what the kingdom of God would look like. If you remember, Daniel talked about the kingdom invading human history and crushing all the other empires. And then we found that as we looked at these foundation stones in the Old Testament, that this helped us make more sense. Jesus comes on the scene in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and he says, the kingdom is here. And we saw in a very real way, Jesus himself is the kingdom. If you want to know what does the kingdom look like, what does it mean to carry the kingdom, Jesus himself embodies the kingdom of God. So we looked at Jesus and the kingdom for two weeks. We looked at the kingdom of God in Acts, and today we're going to look at the kingdom of God in Paul. And what's interesting about the kingdom of God in the letters of Paul, he only mentions the kingdom of God, basileia is the Greek word for it, 14 times in all of his letters. As opposed to Jesus in the Gospels, you find him at least 120 times talking about it. But we know that Paul was deeply influenced by the teaching, the life, the ministry of Jesus. So it is very, very important for him. What I want us to do this morning is I want us to look at four questions that Paul answers for us about the kingdom of God. And the first one is found in Romans 14, 17. If you want to look there in your Bibles, Romans 14, 17. We'll have a slide that puts that up there. And the first question we're raising 
asking Paul, is the kingdom of God present or future? And Romans 14, 17 is going to answer that for us. And the context here, Romans 14, Paul is talking to them about the lack of dietary restrictions. He's saying some of you are coming out of Judaism and Jewish practice, and in Christ you're free from any dietary restrictions whatsoever. And so in Romans 14, look at what he says at verse 17. He says, for the kingdom of God is not food and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So what Paul is saying to the church at Rome here is the kingdom of God is present among you. The dynamic rule and reign of God is operating among you. So when you talk about eating a certain way and keeping certain holy days and all that, you miss the point. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying here. What does he mean by these three words here? The first one, righteousness. He's saying the kingdom of God present among you brings you into right relationship with God. God draws you to himself and makes us right. The second thing, when the kingdom of God is present among us, is peace. And again, Paul is Jewish, so it's not this, the peace sign, it's shalom, and it means deep well-being. So when Paul says the kingdom among you, church at Rome, brings peace, it means peace that settles deep into every crevice of your life. It's peace to the bone marrow. It encompasses your whole life. And then he says joy, and these are kind of cliche words for some of us because we're a little bit numb to them. But when he says joy, he means the gift of delighting in God is given to you through the Holy Spirit. When the kingdom of God comes, you find yourself, like Brad was saying this morning, this is the only thing that satisfies. So Paul is talking about righteousness and peace and joy And the Holy Spirit saying, the kingdom of God is in fact present with you. Another verse quickly here, look at 1 Corinthians 4.20. We're asking Paul, is the kingdom present? And he's saying, yes, it certainly is. 1 Corinthians 4.20. Paul is talking about in this letter and in this chapter, the genuine marks of an apostle. And so he's talking here about false apostles and true apostles, and he's telling the church in chapter four, he's saying true apostles come as selfless servants, and they also don't just fill the air with words. Look at what he says, 1 Corinthians 4.20. He says, the kingdom of God depends not on talk, but on power. The kingdom of God depends not on talk, but on power. If that is not a prophetic word for the church in America, I'm not sure what is. We're pretty good at talking, aren't we? And Paul is saying here, with apostolic authority commissioned by Jesus, the dynamic reign of God is not just a lot of talk. But it is the ongoing experience of the kingdom of God among you. If all you have is talk, is the kingdom really operating among you? That is what Paul is saying. This strikes me to the the core here. 
being involved in a church, leading a church. I want to be a part of a community that doesn't just talk about the kingdom, but we experience it. We're desperate. God, we don't just want to study and talk and read the scriptures. Help us experience this firsthand and help us bring other people into the rule and reign of God among us. As I was looking at this and being struck afresh by the present power of God, I was reminded of a story. Steve Nicholson was just with us, and Steve took me to Istanbul, Turkey, over 20 years ago, and we were talking about the kingdom of God in a small room about the size of this pew area over here, and we were meeting with the first Protestant church ever established in the modern era. And so there were people who were sneaking into this meeting to meet in a secret church plant. And Steve and I were talking, feeling pretty inadequate, addressing these people who were facing martyrdom, their lives are on the line, they're being excommunicated from their families, and we're talking about Jesus bringing the kingdom. And I will never forget it, this young guy comes in the back door and he's standing there, he had long black hair pulled back in a ponytail, a black leather jacket, a motorcycle helmet, and I looked at him and I said, Lord, what, what's going on with this guy? And about four other people came with him and they all had on black leather jackets. They couldn't have been more intimidating. And so Steve and I began in ministry time to call them out and prophesy to them. These were people who had never been in a church. They were culturally Muslim. They were intimidating as heck. And the power of God hit all of them. As we called out this young man, Hakan, and we started to call out his destiny, demons started leaving him on the spot right there. He fell to the ground weeping, and demons were cast out of him, and he became a new person within a window of about 15 minutes. So Steve and I experienced firsthand the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but it's a demonstration of the Spirit's power. And Steve and I didn't bring anything in that moment. We brought our inadequacy. We didn't have much to offer. And the power of God came through and touched Hakan and his future wife and their friends. And to this day, Hakan is one of the most fiery evangelists in Turkey. And so the kingdom of God, church, is a matter of power. And the Lord demonstrates his saving power with people like Hakan. And Hakan has literally led hundreds of Muslims to Jesus in the last couple of decades. Hopefully one day he'll come and speak to us and you can hear his testimony when he's visiting the U.S. A second question here is, how does one enter the kingdom of God? I want us to look at 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11 as we ask this question. I was hesitant to read this passage, but it in fact is the clearest explanation that answers this question, how do we enter the kingdom of God? And I'm just gonna say up front, most of us misread this passage. We have what I call a sin focus when we read a passage like this. And I'm gonna invite us to have a God focus. Not what is wrong with us, what's wrong with these people, but to seek God in this text here, what are you revealing to us about who you are and what you can do with people like us. So with that in mind, let's look at 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. <clears throat> do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? 
Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. At verse 11, this is the God focus. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So we're asking, we look at this text here, we're saying, how does one enter the kingdom of God? And Paul is personalizing nine sins here. He's doing this very thoughtfully because later in his other letter, Galatians, he's actually going to lay out nine gifts, fruits of the Holy Spirit. So Paul is even suggesting there that these are nine critical sins that mire the lives of people, but the person of the Holy Spirit enters into people's lives and plucks those out like weeds and replaces them with the gracious gifts and fruits of the Holy Spirit. This is heavy. Is this a heavy text? As some of you read it, it is a heavy text, but looking at it through the lens of God's grace and goodness I think helps us. I want to make two comments before we look at the the third question here. The first, in this text, Paul is not laying out a hierarchy of sin. Paul is not saying here, I'm working through these sins, and if you're involved in this sin, you're in a completely unique category, and God really doesn't like you very much. If you're a drunkard, that's okay. God can help you sober up. But these other eight sins, there's no hope for you. I don't know what your text says, but are these all alongside one another? They are. All of these things are simply impediments for us. They're roadblocks to keep us from the love and grace and transformative power of God. All of these things. And for some reason, we have a tendency to pull out certain ones and say, ooh, He did that. She does this. That is not the way God's economy works. God sees all of these things as roadblocks. So as a church, we're to look at these things not in a hierarchy. Homosexual behavior, adultery, drunkenness, greed, all of these things, God says, I want to deal with them, and I want to draw people into my loving embrace and heal them. A second comment here. The beautiful and surprising point of this verse is at 11. Let's read it again. Verse 11 here, after he lists these sins, he says, that is what some of you were. Some in this Corinthian church, and Corinth, by the way, was a lot like New York City in its day. It was a decadent place, a lot of debauchery, a lot of partying, a lot of crazy sexual things going on. And so Paul is addressing a church in the heart of Corinth. And he's saying, some of you were like this. Don't forget that, church. The mercy of God came to you and took you out of that particular bondage, that lifestyle. Always remember it. And thankfully, I'm glad to be a part of a church where we talk about these things openly. We have people in our small groups who talk openly and transparently about, I was this. I was in bondage to this. And I'm not afraid to talk about it because God's grace changed me. 
And I'm calling you to experience the same thing. So I would like for this to be a theme that we remember over and over again. Such were some of you. And you know what? That's compelling. Church, when we're out interacting with other people, that's the kind of disposition people want, isn't it? Not looking down our nose. We're pretty holy over here at our Lord's. You better get your stuff together before you come and worship with us. No. Such were some of you. And so we carry that in our hearts, and I tell you, the kingdom of God will come in great power. As I was looking at this, I remembered a story. A friend of mine and I in Chicago, some seminary buddies, who started getting into trouble because we started reading the Bible and going out and doing some of the things, we got involved in AIDS ministry. And in the 90s, AIDS was, uh, it was rampant. There was a, uh, an AIDS hospice, actually, on the north shore of Chicago called Glen Oaks. And this friend of mine and I would go and roam the halls and act like we knew what we were doing. We had some Catholic sisters there who showed us um, some of the ropes and some of the things we needed to know so that we didn't get in trouble and we went through a day of training and then we started roaming the halls once a week at Glen Oaks. And I remember one particular day, we'd go on Friday and we met an emaciated skeleton of a man named Lorenzo. Young black guy laying there and he had a hairpiece in. He probably weighed 80 pounds. He's supposed to weigh 170 or so. He was about 6'2". And we went into his room and we began to share the message of Jesus with Lorenzo. I want to recapture this church. I want to find who are the lepers of our day again and go meet with them. So long story short, we were meeting with, with Lorenzo. We told him about the love of God for him, and we touched him, we embraced him, and he lit up, and he said, I want what you've got. And he said, I've only got a few days to live. The doctors are telling me that I need to see my family, because it, it could be a week, could be two weeks. And he confessed Jesus there, repented of his sin. He said, will you guys take this hairpiece out? I want to become a new person in the few days that I've got left. It was a, a miracle. Lorenzo was born again, filled with the Holy Spirit, and he said, can you baptize me? And I said, well, we don't know what the heck we're doing, but we're gonna baptize you. So we went and got counsel from some people and figured a way to baptize Lorenzo, and we went back up there, we baptized him. And so Lorenzo is one of those who I will see, you will see, in the kingdom of God, who repented in his final hours and confessed Jesus, and Jesus freely forgave him. So church, I just want us to think about who are the Lorenzos out there? Who can we carry the kingdom to? Who can we take the love and forgiveness of God? This guy's story was unreal. He was a drag queen, he had been abused, his life was just in shreds, and here he was dying of AIDS, and the Lord met him, demonstrated his love for him. A third question here that we ask Paul about the kingdom of God, what happens when we enter the kingdom? Colossians 1, we already looked at this text, Colossians 1, 13 through 14 in, in worship. In Colossians 1, Paul is talking about the supremacy of Jesus, 
That's what the book of Colossians is all about. So he opens with this hymn. It's an early song. And he says, Jesus is supreme over all of creation. And Jesus is the supreme Lord over the church. And so here at verses 13 through 14, Paul says this, God the Father has rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is a vivid word picture that Paul is laying out here. He's giving us a a picture that there's a spiritual darkness that covers the earth, but it's temporary and it's limited. Limited authority, the prince of the power of the air and limited time duration. Jesus says, he speaks in the very language that's used here. He talks about the power or dominion of darkness in Luke 22 before he's going to the cross. So he's acknowledging that for a limited time there is some kind of cover over the nations of the earth, but with Jesus coming and proclaiming the good news, he cuts through that. There is a breakthrough in his life and death and resurrection that forever changes human history. A New Testament commentator, one of my old favorites, F.F. Bruce, who is with the Lord now, listen to what he says about this passage. Christ used his authority to raid the domain of darkness and to rescue those who were under the enemy's control. So in his life, his death, his resurrection, Christ kicks the doors open and he plunders the place where the enemy has temporary authority. This is a divine rescue mission, isn't it? And this is our mission. So as we talk as a church about being on mission with Jesus, this is precisely what we're talking about. We're not talking about going out and handing out a tract to someone and saying, hey, I hope you can find God. No, we're saying Jesus is here, right here. Do you want to know about him? But I'm oppressed by demons. I'm addicted to drugs. I'm sexually broken. And we say, well, such were some of us. God is here to deliver you and change your life. And this is exactly what this text is talking about, rescuing transferring, redeeming, and forgiving. I met a, a guy, another Corey. It's interesting, two weeks in a, a row here. This is a different Corey that I just met last weekend here at the Steve Nicholson event on Friday, and he gave me his book, and it had his story in it. And Corey was a drug addict. He was a criminal. He grew up in Stillwater, and he ended up in prison at one point in his life. And he shares in his book the very words that are used here in Colossians 1. Corey ended up being invited to a small group in someone's home, and you know what they told him? Welcome home, brother. And he said, don't you know that I'm on meth right now and that I'm fresh out of prison? And they said, welcome home, brother. And he said it was a turning point in his life, and now he is out sharing this message of Colossians 1 right here. The Lord can rescue you and transfer you from one kingdom to another kingdom. And what's amazing here is look at how the the kingdom's described. How is the kingdom described? The kingdom of what? God's beloved son. It's a kingdom of love. So Corey and Lorenzo and some of us have been in the other kingdom 
And it's not a kingdom of love. It's a tyrannical kingdom. And there's a sly devil who will work you over and punch holes in your life and leave you in greater despair. And the Lord says, if you will simply call out to Jesus, Jesus, I need you. I want a relationship with you. He will transfer you from that domain of darkness into the kingdom of love where a loving king rules and changes your life and bandages your wounds and makes you new. A fourth question here. When will the kingdom of God be completed? And I wish I could just say, I don't know. Let's have ministry time. (laughs) Because really, that's part of what the New Testament teaches, right? It doesn't teach ignorance but it teaches that this is a mystery. We saw in Acts 1-7, Jesus tells his disciples, it's not for you to know when the kingdom will be fully established. We saw that, didn't we? Some of you remember Jesus talks about the coming of the kingdom in the end, in Matthew 24-14. And what did we learn there? The kingdom will come when? When the gospel goes to all the nations. And so we have a rough guess here. We have a a way to discern when the kingdom comes. But the truth is, church, we don't know. So anytime someone can tell you 88 reasons he's coming in 1988, or 19 reasons he's coming in 2019, they're wrong. We don't know. We can discern the times, and really the thing to watch is the gospel of the kingdom going to unreached people. And when we begin to see that and churches are established in those unreached people groups, you ought to lift up your head and say what Jesus said here is drawing close. I want us to look here at a passage before we have the Lord's Supper here. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 28. 1 Corinthians 15. And what Paul is doing in this passage here is he's addressing the theme of resurrection. What Paul is saying is because Christ was raised from the dead, all believers through all time will one day be raised with him. This was not something that many of the Corinthians wanted to hear. They were steeped in Greek philosophy. And so the idea of a bodily resurrection was rather humorous to them. Some of you have read Acts chapter 17 when Paul is in Athens, and he's sharing with some of these philosophically-minded people, and they scoff him, don't they? He's talking to them about this man, Jesus, who was raised from the dead, and that all people one day will be raised from the dead to give account of their lives before God. Some people believe, and some mock. And so Paul is addressing this kind of philosophical influence to the church at Corinth in verses 20 through 28. There is a lot here. Okay, so what I want to do is just read this and then briefly touch on a few points so that we have a better idea of when the kingdom will be consummated or established. Verse 20 here. But in fact, the Apostle Paul says, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have died. For since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being. For as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. But each in his own order. 
Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he's destroyed every ruler and every authority and every power. There's a lot there, isn't there? We'll come back and unpack a few of these things. Verse 25, for Christ must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Then he quotes here from a psalm that we looked at, Psalm 110, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that it does not include the one who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the one who put all things in subjection under him. Catch this. So that God may be all in all. That is a labyrinth, is it not? I can see my head is spinning as I read it again. Your head is spinning. The point is, from that passage, Christ has been raised from the dead, and it guarantees that all who believe in Christ will one day be raised from the dead. That is where all of this is headed. That's the point. And Paul, because he thinks technically, and he thinks biblically, and his mind is filled with the Hebrew Bible, the scriptures, he's going to point to some of those texts. So what in the world is he talking about here? The first fruits. He's talking to people from an agrarian society. And so they know when you bring those first fruits as a grain offering to God, it means that the rest of the crops are coming. It's a guarantee that the full harvest is coming. So Christ himself is like a stalk taken. He is a first fruit, and it means 850 billion other stalks will also be presented to God. It's a fictitious number there, by the way. Don't hold me to account. We know Jesus even talked about this, didn't he? In John 12, he said, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if in fact it's buried, it will bring forth much fruit. Paul is saying, reiterating what Christ said. He would be planted in the earth, he will be raised from the dead, and so will all who believe in Christ. Then he goes on to verse 21 and he said, Adam forfeited his role. It was a kingdom plan from the beginning and Adam and Eve blew it. The opportunity to be God's representatives, God's vice regents of the kingdom, and so Christ steps in as the second Adam to reform and rehabilitate everything and present it to the Father. That's what he's saying at verse 23 as well. He's just reiterating the same thing. Paul thinks like this. The Hebrew mind will say something and then he'll say it again and he'll say it again and then I'll move on to the next subject. So again, the point of this, Christ is the first fruits and then at his coming, he's going to raise everyone else up. And he says at verse 24, the end, when Christ hands over the kingdom to the Father. Let me just make a comment here. Some of you are wondering, I'm sure, what about people that have been buried in the ground for a long time? Amanda and I were actually talking about her parents who died almost 20 years ago. What happens to them? They're decomposed bodies. What happens to her grandmother who was <clears throat> incinerated? What, what's it called? 
Cremated, thank you. We got stuck on that word. So, I mean, think about it, for real. Or think about sailors who fell into the ocean 1,200 years ago who were believers in Christ. These are legitimate questions. And the answer is, we don't know. But Paul makes it clear, abundantly clear, in 1 Corinthians 15 that your body that was given to you, you are a body for all eternity. So somehow God will raise that body and join it to your immaterial part of yourself, your soul, and you will be with God forever. Ever. Some people, that is not good news. They might think, well, my body is handicapped. My body is broken. I lost limbs. Well, there's good news. Your body will be changed. Paul talks about it in the rest of 1 Corinthians 15, so it in fact is good news. Your body will be changed. Some of you who are arthritic this morning are saying hallelujah. So that is the point of the passage here. The Greek word here for the end is telos. And what Paul is saying, this is the telos of human history, that all of history is being directed toward this end. Christ the King will return and he will raise up his people. That is the message of 1 Corinthians 15. And he will reign, it says at verse 25 here, until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Something happened when he died and when he was raised. I mentioned the analogy that some people have proposed. The D-Day moment has already happened. Christ has won. Victory is secure. And now we're in that interim period where gradually and progressively death and the effects of sin are being placed under the feet of Christ. It's a great mystery. So if you're looking for a chronological prophetic timetable here, it's not there. Paul is just saying, it is coming. And then look what he says here at the climax of this section here. He says, all of these things are happening so that God may be all in all. I'm going to end with this quote here. Origin of Alexandria, one of the early church fathers says this, the son fully obeys the father. He's commenting on this passage right here. Completing the work given to him, bringing us and the whole of creation to completion. Christ makes us capable of receiving God. We will be purified from our vices and cleared from every cloud of wickedness so that our minds will be conscious of God alone. It's what he's seeing this passage. Thinking of God, seeing God, and holding on to God. In this way, God will be all in all. That is what this passage is saying. One day, we will be so united, so close, so uncluttered, drawn into God, and he and his will will be supreme in every quarter and in every way. So we've asked Paul here, is the kingdom present or future? And we've seen it's both. We've asked him, how does one enter the kingdom? And we've seen that it's through faith in Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, entering his community through baptism. A third question, what happens when we enter the kingdom of God? We're rescued from darkness and transferred to a kingdom of love. And finally, when will the kingdom of God be consummated? or completed, it will be. We're not sure when, but we can, because of the resurrection of Jesus, be certain that death itself will be defeated. As we turn our attention here to the Lord's Supper, I want us to think about this. 
what we're going to do here is actually a kingdom practice. When we take the body, the blood of Christ, we are celebrating the fact that the kingdom of God has broken in to human history. So Mike, why don't you come lead us in the Lord's Supper?